Welcome to Ongo Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Ongo Farm, ETSU's Bill Gadd College of Pharmacy. And we've got a big get uh, this week on the podcast. You already know if you're listening. So without further ado, let's get to um, uh, my conversation with Dr. Donald Harvey. All right. Well, we are pleased and delighted to have Donald Harvey, director of phase one uh, clinical trials at, at Emory um, Cancer Center in Atlanta, Georgia, joining us on the pod. Donald, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to, to be with you today. Well, well whenever I'm at a meeting or HOPA uh, and talking to former students or residents, uh, one of the easy pieces of advice I have to give that, that never fails, if Donald Harvey's going to talk, make sure you go to it because it's going to be informative and entertaining and it's not going to sound like a, a robot or a drone is is presenting and you're going to learn something, uh, I promise you. So uh, delighted to have you here. Um, before we get into uh, talking about the, this, you know, phase one clinical trials, tell me a little bit about, how about I do this? I'll tell you what I think I know about you from hearing you talk and then you fill in the gaps, correct me where I'm wrong. Okay. I think pharmacy school at UNC yes. and residency at University of Kentucky yep. and a fellowship in there somewhere and some experience as a, a clinical pharmacist in myeloma and now director of phase one studies. That's what I think. You're you're very, very close. So um, I did uh, what would now be called a PGY1 at UK and BS. I was the next to the last post BS PharmD class at UNC as well. And so there were 13 of us in that class, a fun, fun little group. But then I went to Kentucky to do a, a PGY1 and then returned to Chapel Hill to do a PGY2, which in those days was a little bit of a mix of both practice and research. And so um, there wasn't really an official fellowship that I did. And in fact, I'd signed on to do a fellowship in San Antonio with John Kuhn and then decided to stay in Chapel Hill because of a woman. And then a different woman brought me to Atlanta and that's my wife. So um, all the way around, pretty close. And then uh, was at Grady for a couple of years before I came to Emory and joined the phase one program. And my myeloma interest really is in the physician partnership I have with Sagar Lonial here who's now my boss um, in the School of Medicine and is a really good guy. And so myeloma to me is a fascinating cancer in many ways. Um, I think of it as the diabetes of cancer. It really affects so many things, but uh, it's it's a personal interest, I guess. That's that's a nice analogy. It's a, uh, yeah, I often think of it as a chronic disease uh, as well. And um, it's very individualized and in, in how, you know, I, I talked to two offices down, uh, our diabetes guy here in the College of Pharmacy and um, I guess you'd say he's the transplanter of diabetes, very aggressive and, yeah. and on all patients, you need to be so aggressive, but that's a different conversation. Let's talk about uh, phase one studies today. Yeah. And so, so what is the, you know, the goal of a phase one study? Yeah. So I think first off, phase one in cancer is really different from any other phase one area. So when, if you're developing a new drug in cardiovascular or infectious diseases, then that's a, that's a drug that goes in for the very first time to normal, healthy volunteers. And in that area, you control all the variables. Think about every clinical trial like a science experiment. You've got variables that you want to control and some that you can't control, and you have to deal with the uncertainty around those variables. Well, in cancer, thanks to the drugs that we've developed, 
that we have to do these trials in patients with advanced cancer because of the side effect profile of the drugs that they might be receiving. And a really, really important point, John, to all of this is that the phase one paradigm in cancer is based and continues to be based on cytotoxic chemotherapy. And that is a problem. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's something I, I wanted to ask you, um, before. So I guess let's go to that, that based on cytotoxic chemo. Uh, I, I think to when I was a, a PGY2 oncology resident at MUSC and, and I was having to talk with Phil Hall and we we're going through the three plus three design. Yeah. And he told me something like, all right, so they take the dose that kills like 90% of dogs or monkeys or animals and they right. cut it to 10% and we give it to three people and see if they are okay. And then we'll go up to another three people. Is that is that still the, the three plus three design? The three plus three design is still the most commonly used. It's what we would call a rule-based design. And so the rule is, yeah, you treat three people and you start off with a dose that you use some toxicology measure that comes from animals. And that usually a dog model or a lower species like rat or mouse dictates the toxicology that you see. And then you do really, really, really cut that dose. And you know, I, remind, I like to remind trainees particularly that the FDA was created for safety reasons, not for efficacy reasons. And so they take a very conservative approach to those first doses. But that three plus three design is a rule-based design, meaning that exactly what you said, you treat three people and if they do okay, then you go up on the dose. If one of those three doesn't do okay, then you add three patients to that dose level. And if two or more of those six or two of the three don't do okay, then you got to backtrack. And and what is what is not doing okay? How we define they didn't do okay? Yeah, so that's what you'll see in literature and here on podiums, and that's what's called the dose limiting toxicity or the DLT. And it's important also to remember that DLT and the definitions around that have to be based on the population that you're treating. For example, you can't say a dose limiting toxicity is grade four neutropenia if you're doing a phase one trial in acute leukemia. Everybody's gonna have a DLT. Similarly, if you're doing a phase one trial in a population like MGUS or somebody with a precancerous state where you're not sure if they're gonna have cancer, you can't even tickle the liver. I mean, you've gotta be incredibly safe in that population. And most of the trials fall in between. Uh, we're used to cytopenias and many hematologic cancers, so that may or may not be a problem for them, but we really don't like to see grade four thrombocytopenia, for example, in an advanced pancreas cancer patient. So it's really the dose limiting toxicity and those definitions are based on the population as well as on the drug that you're giving or the class of drugs that it belongs to. And when we're talking about these DLTs, I assume we mean acute. Yes. And so that's like after one dose. That's exactly right. And so again, we're back to the cytotoxic chemotherapy paradigm where you give a dose of drug and that dose of drug, if it's cyclophosphamide or doxorubicin, we're going to see very consistent things with those drugs like a reduction in neutrophil count, which happens after 10 to 14 days or so, and then it recovers and it recovers in three to four weeks. And again, that's the whole basis for this idea. The period of time is one cycle. 
So, you know, my IV colleagues, I joke with them. It's like pick a football score, 21 days, 28 days, whatever it is. And that's a cycle. And that's the acute period of time where we observe patients to see how they do after we begin the drug. And then so you get to what what people would call the the NTD, the maximum tolerated dose. And then you're like, okay, we think we have a decent handle on this drug's toxicity profile. Now let's go to phase two. Yes, that's been the historical approach to doing it. And you can, based on the discussion we just had and a rule-based design, a three plus three design, theoretically, you could decide that dose on six patients. And it's something I want to ask you later. Those six patients um, are are trying to represent a whole population of people. Yeah. Uh, and And we... What you would know about someone in 1980 about six people is different than what we can know about somebody's ability to metabolize drugs now. So yeah. we've gone over this rule-based approach. What about the Bayesian uh, approach to phase one studies? Yeah, so that's what all the statisticians and and I really love. It's an idea around you have uh, you base not on rule but on experience, and so you have to have an engaged statistician in the design. And let's say a, a classic design would be the escalation with overdose control, or as many Star Wars fans like to call it, the Ewok measure. And that is a measurement of, let's say at the beginning of the trial, we see we have a sense of what the drug's side effect profile is. And we're going to say, all right, well, we will accept that um, 20% of people participating in this study or who are going to receive this drug, we'll be okay if 20% of them have some series of side effects that we define as dose-limiting toxicities. So grade three or four types of events. And we, we know that there's a dose range of the drug. So we know the starting dose, but then we're also aware of a highest dose that we might achieve. And instead of doing this very ladder-like approach of one to two to three to four for dose escalation, we may start at one and treat a few patients. We're not limited by number. And then we might say, well, how do they do? And if everybody did absolutely fine, for a one month period, we might say, look, the experience is that this is really safe at this dose. So we're gonna jump to this level four and we're gonna treat some patients there and see how it goes. And if that experience is also very, very good, then we might take the same leap again to dose level five or six. But if it's not very good, then we start to iterate backwards and bootstrap in between and alter the dose based on the experience as it comes in. So that's an important point because you've got to have real-time data. You have to have exceptionally good data entry people and people watching these patients on trials. And you have to have a statistician that doesn't just sit in an office all day um, and, and take appointments. They've got to be actively engaged in the trial. And monitoring, yeah. So you know, we've talked about this is all based off of the cytotoxic drugs where yeah. you give a drug that is so dangerous, you have to wait a period until the cycle ends to give a drug again. Many of the new drugs that are approved, I don't know about that go into phase one study, but many of the new drugs are target agents that are taken daily for yeah. three out of four weeks or, or four days on, four weeks off. And many of what the side effects that prevent patients from going forward with treatment are not acute toxicities. There's things that kind of build up over time. How do you find those in a phase one study? Yeah, I think it's an incredibly important point. Some of those side effects 
you might see in a 28-day period, like hypertension, like proteinuria, things that perhaps some of the VEGF-based TKIs and others might show you. However, there are many others that might take much longer to develop or might be not dose-dependent, but very idiosyncratic, like rash. You know, rash often we don't think of as a dose-dependent phenomenon, um, and it might show up at any time. And then you have very chronic adverse events like neuropathy and other types of things that are more chronic, those may be dose limiting or therapy limiting, but often they don't show up until cycles three or four. And really a fundamental point to tyrosine kinase inhibitors or immunotherapy, monoclonal antibodies versus cytotoxic chemotherapy is that if you give dose a dose of cyclophosphamide again, and it's 100 milligrams, and you give a dose uh, to a different patient of 1,000 milligrams, that's a tenfold difference. And there's a linear relationship between the likelihood of a side effect in, in that relationship. However, if you give a patient 60 of cabozantinib and you give a different patient 140 of cabozantinib, you're not going to get more bang for your buck. You have a very plateaued effect of, of anti-cancer activity. However, you do not have a plateaued effect of side effects. The side effects are worse at 140 than at 60, but the anti-cancer activity is no better at 140 than it is at 60. Yeah. If, if someone's listening to this podcast and they, they've stumbled into an oncology podcast and they weren't expecting that, they're probably yeah. like, whoa, 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 wait, this is different than every other drug use we do where it's like, let's use the lowest dose and then go up to reach our effect. And right. for many of our cancer patients, we don't have that luxury Right. In practice, there are patients, it's very common with TKIs, for example, let's start you on 40 of cabozantinib and give that a few cycles to see how you tolerate it. And if you do, will escalate. But for, for cytotoxic, that's not been the case. So right. there's this, let's give them the, the most toxic dose we think they'll tolerate versus the other question is, well, what's the lowest dose that will work? Yep. And I think in cancer, John, you know, you think about this in our world, we are so loath to give up any possibility that somebody might be underdosed because we want to treat that cancer. And that's the, the culture of, of cancer work. We'd rather start high and drop off if people can't tolerate it than start low and go up because sometimes you're, you're, you don't want to fix it if it ain't broke. And if somebody's on a lower dose and they're doing okay, it's again, sort of up to the, the personal psyche of the team treating them to say, well, we could go up or, you know, but they're doing okay and it's palliative. And, you know, the first question is always, what's the goal of therapy uh, right. for any patient with cancer? And so that philosophy has to dictate everything we do. So, you know, as, as we think about this, it, it and this is not a new thought, but comes up right now, a lot of these patients on the phase one study, especially the early ones are probably being underdosed. Oh yeah. And, yeah. and, and they're not maybe getting the benefit. So, so when is a, a patient, so from a, from a phase one director, yep. patient comes to you, when, you know, what does a good patient look like for a study? Yeah. Oh boy, this is a can of worms and one that I've been, I love that you asked and one that I've been thinking about a lot because Again, historically, a good patient would be someone who is pretty fit. So what we would say has a performance status of zero or one, meaning they can pretty much do everything for themselves and their cancer hasn't really impacted them a lot. 
but many of the patients walking into our clinics are, are one or two. And so we are already not mimicking the patients that we see in our clinic. And so a good patient would be someone who you would look at and say, okay, they're they're pretty pristine. They may have creatinine clearance of 60 or higher. Um, they've had some prior therapies, but still look pretty good and feel pretty good. Um, their livers are good. They're, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All of these organs that we think about are good. But if you if you take that approach, what you're going to get is a pretty cherry-picked population that's going to have a side effect profile that is not going to reflect that of the people who eventually get the drug in the market. And that's been the source of a lot of the problems, that we have this cherry-picked population early on. They're able to tolerate certain doses, and therefore we carry those doses forward, and that's been, that's been an issue. Yeah, and so it, it seems to me that if you had a uh, a phase one chemical entity there that was entering phase one, you're more likely to accrue patients if you're going for metastatic breast cancer than say extensive stage small cell lung cancer because yep. you know once you go through two lines of treatment small cell, you're not going to find very many folks who are going to be fit for long enough to start a phase one study. You'll find some of those folks with especially bone only breast uh, yeah. metastatic disease. Fully agree. And that means that if you think your drug, you might be missing a signal. And so a company, if they're going to be very exclusive in who they allow, and if it's an all solid tumor population, you're not going to get that extensive stage small cell patient after their second line of treatment. And yet, but what if it works in them? And then you may not ever see that. And the same thing can be said, for example, if you're going to mandate, you know, many of our studies in phase one require that we get a piece of tissue before the trial begins and we get a piece of tissue from the cancer after the patient begins the trial. Even that alone may mean that you don't get the population that you might give you a signal. You have to get the areas that are easily biopsied. That tends to be the liver, the skin, the head and neck region, et cetera. So you may not get many leiomyosarcoma patients, for example, or deep tissue bladder or prostate because it's just harder to biopsy those patients safely. And so even those types of things limit the population that you may see in phase one trials. Yeah. One of the things that happens a lot in, um, you know, where, where I practice, we're like a secondary center. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. We'll send folks on, but we still get like the acute loops for the region come here and things like that. Yeah. Um, and, and when we have no treatment options or we, we have no good treatment options, you know, we always consider sending folks to clinical trials. Yeah. Um, and so when is, so we talked about when is a, uh, a patient, a good fit from the study perspective, knowing that many of these phase one studies are underdosing initially, when is it in the patient's when is it in their interest? When is a study a good fit for the patient then? Yeah. So for phase one trials, it's a very good question because we're at a place with most of our populations in phase one trials where they've exhausted what would be considered prior standard therapies. I can tell you that the number one likelihood of a patient being referred to the Winship Cancer Institute and Emory University for a phase one trial is third line metastatic colon cancer. 
that is half of our patients. And that makes clinical sense, right? Because you've gotten probably some degree of initial therapy based on your uh, genetics and tumor location. And then you've gotten a second line therapy, which makes some sense. It's, you know, full Fox followed by full Fury, for example, is the classic example with bevacizumab. But then that third line, a lot of people look at and go, ooh, TAS-102 or regorafenib. Ah, it's not a great option. Let's send them to the phase one program. And same thing with a slightly different area, as you stated, with bone-only breast cancer. We may have patients coming into our unit who have had six or seven prior lines of therapy for metastatic disease because it's turned into a chronic disease. Our median number of therapies now for myeloma patients coming into first-in-human phase one studies is six prior lines of treatment. So, you know, that tells you how well, far we've come, but you also have to contextualize uh, the trial for the patient where they are. Most of the vast majority of phase one trials are completely inappropriate for someone getting initial treatment for their cancer, whether it's metastatic or obviously not very locally advanced or adjuvant. Sure. So so what's the informed consent process like for, for your, 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 so let's say this person is healthy, they're, you know, you know, as far as what do you tell them the, all right, benefits to patient, likely benefits, likely risks, that's mm -hmm. um, often a, a tilted in, in one direction here in a phase one state. So how is that handled? No, it's a very, very important question. We work really closely with a research ethicist here named Becky Pence. She and I have published a few papers together specifically around this, specifically around the idea that you've got a brand new compound and you have maybe animal data and you have some uh, maybe in-class data, but you don't have any human experience yet. So you have to be honest about that. And the amount of information in that consent form has to reflect that. And what I would say is if a patient comes in and we're proposing a phase one trial, the first in human trial, and we're on the first or second dose level, I would say, look, we don't have any understanding of what the right dose of this drug is. We don't have any understanding of how well it will work, nor do we have any understanding of of what the side effects will be in you or anyone else. We have some information that are giving us hints, and this is why we're measuring these things and in this way. And I would say, I would say to them, like I say to everybody, somebody had to receive all of the drugs we use in cancer for the first time. And what you find is an incredibly impressive volunteer spirit of the individuals who come on to our trials. And so, yes, they want the drug to work for them. Of course they do. And we do too. Historically, in those first in human trials, it's about one in 10 who has a meaningful response. And I tell my staff and my team, every patient you're looking at is going to be that one until we know differently, because otherwise we'd be decimated by uh, pessimism and, and numbers yeah. games. And so we have to be honest and we have to respect decisions and make sure that we're giving individuals time to think about it, time to discuss it, and that we're not placing them into an ethical, ethically challenging situation for them or us. Yeah, that, that, that you know, it's a, a knife's edge, that hope of, you know, there are like the elaborate phase one study that got published in, in EJM where there's there's, um, you know, you swing for the fences and you get a really good hit, but but more often not the benefit that the patient is getting is is for a son, a grandson and, and more benefit to society for for them. 
No, I often call our patients the blood donors of the cancer world, literally and figuratively. They're giving for other people, but they also give a lot of blood for PK analyses and other things. Yeah. So one of the things I'm, I'm always fascinated by, and I remember having this kind of epiphany when I was a resident, I was like, you know, I, I feel like if they did uh, the phase one irony TCAN study now in 2008 or 2009, they should have they should have done it three times. They should have had it for UGT 101 homozygous for heterozygous and then UGT star 28, star 28 homozygous. We should have three of these and there should be three doses. Yep. Um, when when do we feel confident? How I, I guess you can't know until you put it in, in patients. How it's going to be metabolized and reliably being able to predict who's going to have more toxicity and then, you know, you know, change your dosing scheme there because patients that have, you know, sit three, four deficiencies are probably going to have more toxicity to a TKI. Right. Um, and in the study, in the sponsor's interest, it seems like they're more likely to have a successful study if they have that information before going into it. So, so is that happening? Is that coming? You know, what should we expect in the future with that? Yeah. So for dosing and germline variations and sort of endogenous differences between people, there are a few things we do have some degree of, of hands around. One is um, you do have PK measurements of, of drug in each of these cohorts. And it may only be three individuals that are there, but if you have a major outlier, then you have the phenotype, sort of the, the actual alteration in drug metabolism or drug levels. Then you have to ask the question, what's the genotype? And so, it, and you do know from a lot of these drugs from preclinical work, how they're metabolized through liver microsomes. And so these experiments are done where you'll put the drug into a system that includes living um, human hepatic microsomes, and you measure the parent drug and then the metabolite on two sides of a, of a membrane. And you can then see, all right, well, where does it go through? What is the what does the stuff before and after look like? And you backtrack and say, well, that's what CYP3A4 does. So we believe it's a CYP3A4 substrate. And you start to do more studies around that. And so therefore, if you start to see major differences in PK in one individual at a dose level, you start to interrogate the genetic abnormalities that might be present in that metabolic pathway. Now, the CYP3A world is huge, and it's so well-preserved that it's hard to know in that area. But for the Aranotecan example, you know, UGT1A1 and the star alleles, that was, you know, that was a complicated scenario because remember, you know, Aranotecan gets converted to CPT11 by, or to SN38 by um, by CYP3A4, and then it goes, it's the SN38 that becomes glucuronidated and then gets dumped in. So, you know, those metabolic pathways, though, are often not known until you do what's called a mass balance study in humans or some other thing to really get a sense of where the drug goes. So you're learning as you go in these trials. Often you're learning, you're building the plane as you fly it, whatever analogy you want to use. Yeah, and now we have more and more data about uh, transporter proteins and OCT2 yep. and, and OT1, whatever, uh, all these transporter proteins in the liver and, and the GI tract that um, uh, it, I can see how it would be really challenging to predict that. But to, to go back to kind of a real example, let's say we're doing a three plus three, a rule-based thing, and you know, one patient has a, has a DLT, the next patient doesn't, the next patient has a DLT, but it's really severe. It's a really bad toxicity. And you interrogate, say, there is, we do find a germline reason 
this person is atypical. Yep. Then do you add a, do you, because if they're at two at three, you're at, you've broken a rule and you would have to go back down a dose level. So would yeah. you take that outlier out? No, no. Cause they're the real world. And that's where I really get pretty passionate about this. The likely thing that would happen would be they're in a clinical hold on the study. You'd have to sort of stop things and analyze everything and then restart. But because they had a major adverse event, you would, uh, you would follow the rule um, and go from there. But then if you do discover that there's some bit of information then you that you need to utilize, then you sort of see what would likely happen is you start to screen for that and exclude those patients. From it become that. an exclusion criteria. Yeah. yeah. Because gotcha. it's not safe. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I think of a couple real world examples. So, so one is the, the, the roll out of full vestrant. And I don't know how long into full vestrant in the market, we said, Double the dose. Let's yeah. give more. Uh, right. And then we had, um, uh, you know, the the capazitaxel, Jeptana, and prostate cancer. We said, let's decrease the dose. Right. Um, and um, you know, my favorite dosing story is the rituximab, where our phase two dose is not the maximum tolerated dose, but what we have. Yeah. Roll our the financially next tolerated dose. Yeah. What we have for our next twenty patients. Yeah. Um, so you know, and those are. We have lots and lots of drugs approved really every year. And those are three examples yeah. where the 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 phase two dose end up not being the dose that we're using. And you yep. maybe you can make Cape Side being another example, at least oh, here absolutely. in the States. Um, yeah. so you could say, What's wrong? We're not getting the dose right. Or you could say, Gosh, that's well above a 300 batting average. <laughs> oh, and so so um, I, I, I guess it, uh, the way that we're doing phase one studies here uh, as, as a society, mostly good. Do we need major changes, minor changes, refinements? What what kind of do you see or what are these these changes after approval and dosing tell us? I'd say on a scale of zero to 10, zero being no changes whatsoever and 10 being uh, explode the whole system and start over. I think we're at about a six or seven. And the reason I say that is nowhere else do we allow this to happen. Um, no other disease do we do we have an approval of a drug. Think about an ACE inhibitor that had a dose changed after approval, or any other or an antibiotic, or HIV meds, or anything else. Drug you can go down the list. We do this pretty badly in cancer, and, and it affects patients. And I think that's what we all need to remember. Yes, we want to get drugs to patients quickly, but patients and providers. And think about it: if you give a dose of a drug to somebody and they don't tolerate it, and you're the oncologist, and you give that same dose to the next patient and they don't tolerate it. And the third time, and then you're like, screw this. I'm not giving this drug anymore. This is way too toxic. And now you've impacted a drug that might've been effective at a lower dose across the population. And you've really messed it up for everybody. And so how did we get here? I think is, is fundamentally a reduced number of observations. We're just not interrogating different doses enough in the development phases. And, and, Will it cause delays in getting drugs to market? Potentially, and I really hope not, because I think on the back end, I'd like to argue that we should be increasing the starting dose for a lot of these drugs, and maybe that would shave some time off of the development process. But the reality is that those drugs I mentioned, antibiotics, et cetera, they have a lot of interrogation of dose 
before they come to the market. And they also have patients that are real world in their trials. And, and the patients we have historically, if you look at any registration trial of a myeloma therapy, the median age is about 57 or 58. That's 10 years younger than the median age at diagnosis. Does it mean that age is a factor? Not necessarily. It means that performance status, organ function, and everything else is a factor. So I believe we need to broaden um, eligibility criteria earlier in trials, and we need to have more observations of dose. And we need to pick a couple of doses of drugs that make sense to develop further if you see a signal, and we start to need, we need to start to ask questions about those doses. And that's what Project Optimus is in the FDA's and uh, the Office of of Oncology Center of Excellence, that's what they're trying to do is to say, look, everybody, you know, and it's not necessarily needed for antibodies. Antibodies are like, you know, you need to develop the basement, the bottom dose, and you can give like rituximab, you know, 27 grams of the stuff and it won't really matter. But you're really, it's really, I think, focused in on the small molecule inhibitors where we've got to do a better job of observing more dose levels. Yeah. I mean, if you just think of it from a numbers perspective, you're, you're basing a, a, a lot off of a relatively a small sample size. Absolutely. And um, we don't critique that for phase one studies, but for, you know, for investigator initiated phase two studies, for phase three studies, for whatever, like, oh, the, the most common limitation you read in a publication is small sample size. And we're basing all of our drug dosing off of small sample sizes. Yeah. And we're about to published, we're analyzing data now from a former resident who was here at Emory of the frequency of dose reductions, interruptions, and discontinuations in registration trials. So that data is all publicly available. And if you think about it, that's crazy, right? So if you have a drug like linvatinib, where 78% of people in the registration trial required a dose reduction, and that's in a clinical trial population. And it's only going to get worse in the real world. Yeah. And so anytime you have a drug that's approved where there's a post-marketing requirement to study dose, I think we failed. Yeah. So as you were talking a little bit back about when I asked you the question about, uh, you know, genotyping folks for three or four yeah. and things like that, I was like, gosh, oh, if I was 10, 15 years younger, I'd want to try to follow this pathway. So so yeah. let's say there's a there's a PGY2 oncology resident there they're um they're listening to this podcast uh, um you know while they're collecting data uh, yeah. on their research project in December and their 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 preceptor program said here this is going to be a good phase 1 study discussion you get to hear Donald Harvey talk about phase 1 studies you'll benefit from it and and they're like I think I might want to I was thinking I want to do bone marrow transplant I wanted to or cellular transplant cellular therapies and now maybe I want to be a phase 1 yeah. Uh, uh, you know, investigator. So what advice would you give to that? And it doesn't have to be a pharmacist, could be a nurse, physician, PA. What would you give to that clinician about, yeah. you know, being involved and not in the data collection, but in the design and thinking the science part of this um, yeah. phase, one, phase one studies? It, it's hard. I mean, I, I got here by kind of dumb luck, to be candid. I met a guy at, that I worked with at Grady when I came to Atlanta, and he's like, Donald, we're starting a phase one program at Emory. I think you could you could lead it. I'm like, you're crazy. I'm not trained to do this. I don't know how to do this at all. And I learned on the job and, and came in. And so I don't know the path right away, to be candid. I think you've got to have 
um, a center that does a fair number of them. You've got to show your value like anything else in pharmacy, your value to the team and what you can bring to the team in an academic medical center. Um, in, a, in a school of medicine, I've had to sort of show my worth through clinical trial budgets and having percentages of my salary assigned to budgets where I help oversee the trial, uh, potentially do other things, and then write our own trials for investigator-initiated studies. And so it gets a little complicated, but there are some wonderful phase one programs out there that need pharmacists and need them in many, many different capacities. If you want to design them, honestly, the best place is industry. I mean, industry is really the, the driver of drug development in the U.S., and and those company and many companies uh, do have pharmacists as part of their uh, R&D teams to, to help lead them. Academically, it's a little more limited. There are probably about four or five of us, I guess, that I can think of that sort of work in phase one spaces uh, across the country right now. And, you know, I think a bigger question or maybe a more salient um, thought process is how can we get patients on trials where they are? How can I be an advocate for clinical trials in my practice center now? We're still no better than 8% of adults going on trials as a whole. And, and certainly, you know, we've got to do better um, if we're going to see better outcomes for cancer overall. Yeah. What's that number for, for pediatrics? Uh, it was uh, back in the late 90s, it was about 85%. I think it's down to about 80 only because ALL was a main driver of, yeah. of those kids. But, you know, part of that is pediatric cancer, thankfully, is a pretty you know unusual occurrence across yeah. the board compared to adults. But also most of them come to big centers that run trials. And so the peds have done it right. Um, and we've just got to get trials to patients where they are. You know, your patients there should be able to be on a trial where they live. And how can we change the structure not to make them drive to Nash Vegas or anywhere else, but rather, you know, uh, treat them where they are there and monitor them carefully through partnerships? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. It is it is a very large hurdle for patients and um, yeah. and their families and things like that. Uh, and I, I'm glad that you said that because I asked I asked my students uh, in kind of our, our first lecture, I say, here's what the survival used to be for ALL. Yeah. And here it is now. And I say, what do you think the reason for that is? <laughs> and I'll, I'll have like, here's here's Vin Christine, here's Rituximab, here's whatever, clinical yeah. trials. And I say the answer is clinical trials because it was a stepwise approach. And the yeah. drugs had something to do with it, certainly. Yeah. But it was um, asking the needed question in the right way yes. and then using that information to ask the next right question. Time after time after time is how we got here. And I think what you see in, for for example, you know, the disease near and dear to my heart, myeloma, there's so many things that are out there and there are no clear questions on sequencing or anything else because so much has happened and there's not a centralized way to ask, you know, questions in a, in a, in a rational way, so to speak. There are a lot of questions asked, like the research question is, we want the answer. Yeah. To be something is is not and it's so we're getting that part where I told you in the five minutes before is like we could talk for hours about the state of clinical trials. Absolutely. Here, but, yeah. but why don't we why don't we wrap it there, Donald Harvey? Thank you so much for joining us uh, on this episode. Um, and remember, doses matter. Mm -hmm.